Well, good morning, C4. Uh, I can say this officially, happy summer. Isn't that great? Absolutely. So good. Want to welcome many of you watching and listening online. Maybe you're at a cottage. Maybe you're a part of another connect group across the province or somewhere else in the world. We want to welcome you here this morning. As I've shared with you that I'm a father of three young children and my life is continually in wonderful chaos. Uh, As an only child and an only grandchild, all the illusions that the world is about me have been destroyed forever. And uh, as I was uh, doing the normal rhythms of dad life uh, last week, I've shared this before, my two-year-old son uh, did something that all two-year-old boys do. He walked up to his oldest sister, who's six, smiled at her and hit her as hard as he could and then went, (laughs) right? Um, and now I, now I turned, I observed the incident, and again, I've used this before, we have multiple United Nations incursions in our home trying to deal with issues between warring tribes, Emma, Hannah, and Noah, and, um, and so I watched my daughter make a decision. She got hit, and she was contemplating, did that hurt, and should I make a deal about it? And then she saw that I saw it. Right, right, okay. So she uses that. And so I went over to my son and I got down with my son again and I, and I grabbed him by the shoulders. Not hard, it's okay, just did this. And I said to him, Noah, look at me. Now, you know the John Thompson look. My kids get it all the time. Look at me. Now, it was amazing. It was like he had no ability to look in my eyes. It was like my face was the burning sun, and he could never, ever look in my eyes. He looked up. He looked down. He looked all around. And, and I said, now, Noah, you, my glasses are off. Noah, look at me. And he's, he's looking all around. And, and then what does he try doing? He tries running, right? Because he thinks it's funny. So he's trying to, he's shaking as he's trying to get away. He's not looking at me. And I said, son, you're going nowhere. You're going to look at me. And what is the word you need to now say? So I'm watching him and his eyes are up top and he suddenly lowers them just a bit and goes, a two, sorry. Oh, I'm like, oh God, help me when he's 13. So, uh, uh, and, and I said, well, actually, no, it, it, you're not saying sorry to me. You need to go say sorry to your sister. And then the whole thing fell apart again because he didn't want to do it. 20 minutes later, he said sorry. They played in a sandbox. Everything was great. So what I found intriguing about my two-year-old was this. His natural reaction when I asked him to confess something that he knew was wrong was to laugh about it, hide from me, and avoid it. Now, as I observed this in my little two-year-old, it suddenly dawned on me that that is what we all do all the time. We run, we hide, we make a joke about it. We don't ever want to lower our eyes and look in the face someone we have hurt, let alone God himself, and say the words, it is true, I am guilty, I am Sorry. Welcome to week three of spiritual practices. Over the last few weeks, actually the last few years, our church has been on quite the journey with Jesus. And here's some of the things we've been learning. We've been saying that if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power from heaven itself to serve each other in a broken world, then spiritual practices, if you already are a Christian is a guaranteed place of transformation. 
Now, let me say this this morning, whether you're not a Christian, you've just become a Christian, you've been a Christian for years, or you're not sure. sure. Let me say this. Spiritual practices are, if you are a Christian, a guaranteed place, not of change, but of transformation. We change things all the time. I change my hair. I change my fashion. I change my glasses. Change isn't a strong enough word in our culture anymore. But transformation, oh, that's strong enough. See, spiritual practices don't make you a Christian. Spiritual practices don't get you a relationship with God. And they don't even impress God that, in, in that sense. But they are the very vehicles that place us in his very presence so we get transformed by him and we also get to hear what we're called to do. They're the thing that brings health into the relationship we already have. And so today we're going to look at a practice called confession. Now, don't worry. We're not setting up black booths at the end of the service before you get to the food trucks and hearing your confession about gluttony before you do it. Okay, so to fully understand and engage in the practice, the need, the want, to actually have the desire that is so countercultural to confess, all of us this morning need to go back to the beginning. All the way back to the very beginning, for there is where the problem started, and there is where we begin to find questions and answers. If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to hop through the scriptures today. And again, if you don't have one, you can use your phone in here, or you can watch the screens. In Genesis chapter 2, it says this, that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. What does that mean? It means that they were walking with God with no issues. They were walking with each other, no issues. And the scriptures are clear that before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve had a good marriage with each other. They were physically, sexually, relationally, all good with each other. Everything was right. They were having dominion over the world. They were walking with each other and they were walking with God. And into that perfection, into that balance... Genesis 3, 1 reads like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said back to the serpent, well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or or you will die. (laughs) You're not going to die, the serpent said to the woman. For see, God knows that if you eat from it, your eyes, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God. God, knowing good and evil. The moment sits. You're going to be him. Don't you know that disobedience will bring blessing? Breaking God's law and your relationship with each other and God is the best thing you can do. Disobedience always brings a positive result. Of course, this is a mixture of misquotation, denial, slander. It's meant to seduce. See, the promise is so strong, so, so, so narcotic-like. See, you get to be the one that you're in the image of. You're going to be more than he says you can be. And, and, and God, don't you know, don't you know, God's afraid of you. 
The crazy thing in the story is that Lucifer, in the form of this snake, is already living proof that this is a lie that can go nowhere because he himself tried storming heaven already and was already kicked out. He's the embodiment of what he is saying is not true. That snake sitting there looking now into the eyes of those made in the image of his enemy. One thinking about sin and evil wrote these words, deification. The desire to be like God is a fantasy so difficult to repress. It is a temptation so hard to reject for every person sitting in this room. Everyone watching online, this is us. In the woman's case, she just needed only to give in by doing one thing. Shifting her commitment from doing God's will and choosing to do her own will. Everyone ready? Listen closely. Whenever one person makes his or her own will crucial and God's revealed will irrelevant, whenever autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person, that finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations opposed on them by their creator. It says in verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took some and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then. This is a then that hangs over eternity. The eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sin is not only breaking God's law, it's breaking covenant with one's Savior. Sin is the smearing of a relationship. Sin is the grieving of one divine parent and benefactor. It's a betrayal at the deepest level of one whom you're joined with. It's like having an extramarital affair on God. And we've all got to remember, see, don't miss the power of the Scriptures. All sin, one wrote, has a Godward force. How you mistreat yourself, how you mistreat others, always in the end is an assault on God. Why? I'll tell you simply, because God's law reflects who he actually is. And what happened in that small act? Well, it says in verse 8 that the man and his wife suddenly heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to Adam, that's the man, where are you? And Adam answered, well, I heard you in the garden. Pay attention, please. I heard you in the garden and I was, what's the word? Everyone say it loud. What? That wasn't loud. I was what? Afraid. Because I was naked. So I, what's the last word loud? Hid. For the first time in human history, in the first time, what we take for granted happened. This idea of afraid suddenly entered not only the lexicon of humanity, but actually was the experiential knowing. I was scared. I was fearful. I was terrified. I was anxious. I was troubled. Of who? Of God. Well, who is God? Let's remind ourselves. God is love, and God is joy, and God is peace. He's patient. He's kind. He's good. He's faithful. He's gentle. He is always self-controlled. Why would you have to be afraid, scared, fearful, terrified, troubled, anxious? Why does it feel like you're walking down a back alley, and a thug's going to come and take you out? No, the one in the back alley is actually love itself. Why are you terrified? Well, I'm naked. 
Now, don't misunderstand. It's not like he looked down and went, oh, what's that? Oh, I'm naked. Oh, right? No. Or for women, oh, okay. <laughs> they, they were very aware of their parts. Grade eight conversations had been done. So what they realized was they were not innocent. They suddenly realized that there was good and evil as option that had now become reality, and they had now crossed from one to the other. They were afraid. Innocence has now been ripped from the encounter of humanity. And what's the last thing he says? He said, so we hid. The first result of the fall was to hide from love itself. And we've been hiding from God ever since as human beings. We try to avoid God at any cost. The human family is filled with continual acts of hiding. We hide as a human family by religion, which we believe that if we're good enough, we can actually impress God and he's going to like us. Do you notice it's you-centered, not God-centered? That's hiding. Let me say it again. Religion is hiding from God. And most people believe it's how you meet him. We hide by secularism where we declare that we can do life ourselves and it doesn't matter if God is involved or if he even exists. We fill our lives with sex in all variations and money, relationships, power, education. We invent our own spiritualities trying to fill and make sense of our purpose, trying to give our souls rest. Yet all these things, some good, some inherently bad, some neutral, all fall short. For when we make any one of those things acts of hiding, when they are used to replace walking with God in a personal way in the garden, that becomes hiddenness. And what folly, what lunacy, what hubris to think that we could actually flee from God and hide. How sad that we, thousands of years later, still believe we must hide from God. How horrifically terrifying that many of you sitting in this room and online who are Christians still believe after you've met him as love, you still think you need to hide from him. But can you hide from God? <laughs> no. No one can hide from their creator, not one. As the psalmist cried out in 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you will be there. So into this catch-22, into this rock and hard place, into this chosen hiddenness, God came anyway. Love was stronger than our chosen fear. Love was stronger than our chosen guilt. Love was stronger than our chosen hiddenness. God loves you. Amen. God loves you. The verse that is quoted at every football game in the States has so much more power when you know how hidden we are. For God, what? So loved the world. But so much of the time we misuse this word, world, that word, world, doesn't mean the ball we're on, this globe. And the world does not mean in Greek the people on it. The word world here used by John is a satanically run, darkened, broken system that is hostile to God, filled with humans in bondage. That's what that word means. Did you know that? 
For God so loved brokenness. For God so loved the darkened places. For God so loved those who had rebelled against him. For God so loved the whole system that had crashed that he what? That he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but will have everlasting life. In other words, you don't get stuck with the world. You become a new thing. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God comes for us when we don't want him, and God comes for us when we cannot get back to him. He chooses to walk into our hiddenness, and if and when we embrace him, he forgives us, and he makes us clean by his work. See, Jesus came to die on that cross. The cross is more than a symbol, more than a fashion statement, more than inherited faith. It is the historic place. It is where God fully reveals himself to us and is where Jesus declared forgiveness is possible. It is the place where all things in Eden that have been lost are restored. And only the king of heaven, only God himself could make such a bold claim. By one tree in Eden, we chose ruin and hiddenness, and by this tree, we get everything back. We get paradise back, and we fully, in the face of Jesus, get to see who Adam and Eve used to walk with and then hid with, and we don't need to hide any longer because we are clean. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every Christian on earth no longer has to hide from God because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, our Savior. This is the good news of great joy that we declare in this church and all churches. Like we've learned this year, salvation is transferred, not bought. Salvation is free, it's never earned. Salvation is a love a display of love. Salvation is a, declare, a declaration of faith. And like we learned at Easter, all the metaphors Paul later used become reality, ready, when we stop hiding and confess our need. This is what Jesus has done for every one of us who's a Christian here. He's pardoned us, liberated us, filled the gap for us, stepped in for us, stands for us, prays for us, and has ransomed everything for us. We're all good with God the Father. But here's what we need to begin with. Every single person in this room and online who's a Christian, you started your walk with God with the spiritual practice of confession. When human beings humble themselves and choose to say, we need God's help. When we come out of hiding and stand naked before a holy God and ask for help, every time Jesus says, I'm ready to make you clean, right? Our movement begins with the spiritual discipline or practice of confession. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our movement is based, founded, the door that opens the conversation is right here. Jesus is Lord. I need help. I'm hiding no longer. But here's the question for all of us now. How do you, myself, we, how do we as Christians walk in our God-given freedom? Now, I want to say this right up front as I get going. You're like, you're getting going? Yeah, I'm getting going now. Okay. (laughs) Confession is a great thing. 
It's about joy and freedom. It's not about humiliation or beatings. It's not about just doing something to get a checklist. No, no. There is freedom in what I'm about to preach to you. There is freedom in this. Most people never get to the act of confession because they don't think it's about joy. I'm telling you, listen to what I'm about to preach. This spiritual practice could set a lot of you free. How do we as Christians walk in our already given freedom? How do we walk in transparency? Because we've just heard that not one of us sitting in this room who loves Christ needs to hide from God anymore because we're under Jesus' work. And since we don't need to hide from God, we actually don't need to hide from each other. So how does the spiritual practice of confession help us do this? Let me say this again. The spiritual practice is a guaranteed place of transformation. And the spiritual practice of confession is a guaranteed place of transformation for every one of us because it continues to confront our want to hide. It overcomes the lie in us that we need to be afraid from God. And it also overcomes the lie that we're still guilty when we are not. There is not one Christian in this room that is guilty before God. Yes or no? Amen? Not one of us is guilty because of the work of Jesus. We don't need to hide. We don't need to be afraid. And we are not owned by guilt. And the spiritual practice of confession keeps reminding us of what Jesus has already given us. But when we don't practice this, we forget like that. So you got a Bible. Turn over to James chapter 5. Now let me give you a definition as you are flipping over there or navigating there. A great definition. This is what one person called confession. They said confession is sharing our deepest weaknesses and our failures with God and trusted others so we might enter into God's grace and mercy and experience his ready forgiveness and healing. Now everyone just stop for a moment. Look up. You online. Just look at the screen, okay? Look at that definition. Do you feel it? Do you feel the panic in the room? The fear? No, 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 I can't do this. No, no, I'm here for the food trucks, not for this. What do you mean my deepest failures? No, no, you're, hold on. You're telling me that I need to go before God and be like unbelievably candid and then you're telling me I need to look into the face of another human being who I trust and tell them what I've actually done or what's been done to me? No, no. Don't you understand? Uh, that will make me, everyone ready, afraid. And then I'm going to be exposed and naked before God and others. So here's what I need to do. I need to hide. No, no. Jesus has overcome all of that, I thought. And yet your DNA, your very reaction and mine is, I'm going to be afraid, I'm going to be exposed, I'm not going to do this, I need to hide. And then I say to you, see, the first Adam has no more power in you than the second. Some of us, you are Christians, just did a very perverted thing in our head. Not sexually perverted, but very perverted. Many of you just did this. Well, I'm fine with that. Mm, I'm, preach it, John. Mm, I'm good. But it's just, I don't need to talk to others. It's just me and Jesus. I'm just good with Jesus. I don't need a, all you other people are messed up, but I'm good. 
And what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do. It's just me and Jesus, and I'm going to hang out with Jesus, and I'll tell him everything. But I don't need to look in the eye of any person and tell them, because Jesus is my Savior. I am sorry, that is not biblical. You cannot have Jesus without his body. He is the head, we are the body. It says in James, ever in there, chapter 5? James, Jesus' half-brother, who used to think he was a lunatic, who realized his brother actually was who he claimed, became one of the great leaders in our movement, wrote this unbelievably power-packed book called The Book of James. And in James chapter 5, he explicitly talks about confession as a place of freedom. But he starts in a very unusual place, a place I wouldn't expect to start. James chapter 5, verse 14. Is any one of you, what? Sick. Now, when I used to read this, I'd always think of physical, like colds to cancer, hospitals. But when I read it, I realized that the word sick actually means weakness. Is anyone among you weak? Anyone among Okay, so who's weak in any form? Raise your hand. Okay, you're all lying. <laughs> Confess. No, no, no. Okay, so, no, no, watch this. Is anyone among you weak? Do you have a personal limitation In the broad meaning, it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, sexual. From illness to mental illness to a sin that's habitual, actually to some of you who have a deeply cold heart, though you're a Christian, weak. Now, if you read James 5, it says everyone's supposed to pray, but then when we acknowledge that we are weak, the sick among us are actually called to ask others to minister to us. Now, in the West, even here at C4, this is where tons of you shut down and choose not to have freedom. Because we've been taught that weakness and sin and frailty needs to be covered and hidden. We need to cloak all of that up because we need to have the appearance of a confident, good, in-control Christian. And every single time, listen to this, we cover up, the Holy Spirit is grieved, heaven weeps, the work of the kingdom of God, that's the reign and rule of God, is thwarted in our lives, is thwarted in your family, and it's thwarted in this church, and the work of God does not go out in power in this region. James is about to say, if anyone is weak among us, you don't get to avoid the conversation. You have to drop your pride, genuine humility, It's to mark the church. It's not up to the leadership or other Christians to come to you. It's actually for you. Your will matters. Your willingness to submit to leadership and others. That is the key. It says it must be volitional. You are to ask your shepherds and the church community to rally around you and pray that you get well. It says in verse 14, you should call the elders of the church to pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, two things it says will happen. If you're sick or weak, call on these people, and this is what they will do. They will pray over you, and they will anoint you with oil. Now, like when I preached this a long time ago, lots of people said, John, I I get the praying thing, but what's the deal with oil? Like, why do we need it? Does it have to be from Israel? Does it have to have myrrh in it? Does it have to be, like, extra virgin to work? Uh, You know, like, can it be from Costco? Is it butter? Is it Crisco? Can I use my, like, but honestly, we're all sitting here going, well, it's biblical, but but what does it mean? You know, and for you who are visiting today, don't worry. It's all good. We're not going to put butter on your foreheads today. We're not coming for you. You know, no, it's all good. We'll feed you later. So um, here's the question. What is oil about? Well, there's two meanings. Uh, It's both supernatural and it's symbolic. Anything that's dedicated to God not contains power, but becomes a place of encounter. 
In the Old and New Testament, all sorts of things were dedicated um, uh, to God. The, the tabernacle, uh, the temple, uh, Jesus' even gowns. Like anything that's dedicated to God can become a place of contact between you and God. It's not magic. There's no power in those things. But if dedicated to his purposes, they can become conduits to heaven, if you want to say it that way. But in the Old and New Testament, oil was used as a sign of the Spirit. Priests were anointed with oil. Kings were anointed with oil. uh, Even furnishings for the temple. All as a demonstration that God's presence and power and authority had been given. And so James says, come if anyone's sick. And pray in the name of the Lord. In other words, the church isn't saying, we're going to heal you. No, this is God doing it. We're asking God to show up. And both that has been dedicated and those people become the vessels for God to use. Then it says in verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well. The Lord will raise him or her up. And if they have, what? Sinned, they'll be forgiven. Now, what's really interesting, it says that they will be raised up. And here's the point. Will healing always happen in that place? No. That phrase, they will be raised up, is critical because we actually in this church, in every church on earth, preach that healing is guaranteed. And it's not in this lifetime. It's called the what? Resurrection. There is a day coming when Jesus comes back that all forms of physical, emotional, mental, sexual, relational sin will be gone and we will all be healed. Isn't that going to be an amazing day? Amazing day. So healing is guaranteed, and sometimes God chooses in his sovereignty to heal in the now, but always in the not yet. So he says, do this. But then he says, because he's been talking about sickness so far, and then he says, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And here's James' point. Ready, everyone, listen. Much, not all, much of our suffering, not all, is connected to our sin, our family's sin, or someone else's sin. Not all weakness is produced by personal sin, yet much of the time it's true. So ready? Everyone get ready. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it is effective. As one wrote, mutual confession of sin in his mind is a habitual practice in the church. Why? Because it brings doubt because it brings humiliation, because you've, no, no, it brings healing. While leaders have a unique role in the church, James makes it clear that every Christian has the privilege and responsibility to hear confessions and pray for each other. See, when a person comes into the light in the church and confesses and repents of sin, great power is released. As an ancient church father used to say, great is the power of repentance. It brings healing. Look at this verse. This is the model for the church. Therefore, James is saying, all of us must practice the spiritual discipline of confession to each other. And we will be healed. Turn over very quickly to Jesus' best friends, one of his book, 1 John 7. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus' closest friend wrote these words. He says, if, so 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, I want you to hear this this morning. If we walk in the light, do you notice it? No hiddenness. If we walk in the light as Jesus walks in God the Father's light, 
we have fellowship with each other and Jesus cleans us. Now, watch this. If we walk with Jesus over time, we will reflect him. But do you catch the word fellowship? That's another practice we're going to talk about this summer. The gathering, regular, regular gathering of Christians is one of the things we're called into. And part of that gathering is confession. See, confessing our sins and gathering together is not an option in our faith. It's connected to the faith that we have. Many of you actually believe that coming to weekly worship, communion, prayer, fellowship service, and confession are optional. I'm sorry, this isn't McDonald's. You don't get to choose the menu. You're wrong. This is what the normal Christian life looks like. And by the way, this is not legalism. This is what naturally flows out of you when you love Jesus and have his life in you. So he says, if you are walking in the light, as he walked in the light, we have fellowship with him and each other. Verse 8, then he says, and if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and there's no truth in us. And we all know, of course, that's crazy because we became Christians because we realized we were in trouble. And then he gives us the verse every person in this room has to hear before I'm done preaching. If we confess our sins, sins, you notice that? Just stop. Is it sin or sins? Plural. Sins. So if we confess what we do regularly or once in a while in detail, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from, keep critical, I need everyone to say this loud. What's the next little word? All, all unrighteousness. See, to confess sin is not merely admitting sin, but actively going to him to seek forgiveness. And we know because of his character, he's going to forgive us because God is faithful and he's just. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because he has conquered sin and death and the demonic, Jesus has the the right, the ability, and the want to keep on cleaning us from all unrighteousness. And I want to declare this today with authority. There is nothing too dark, too perverted, too evil, too powerful to overcome Jesus' work in our lives, his blood has overcome all sin. All of it. All of it. Now hear this. When I lecture outside this church, I say this when I'm talking about spiritual conflict or practices. I say, if I read the book of Leviticus, there's a lot of really wild stuff in the book you're not supposed to do. I've heard every single style of sin in Leviticus confessed in this church. And when I get the privilege of looking across a table or sitting in a nursery with someone as they actually suddenly unveil a very dark thing they are so ashamed of, oh, what power when someone hears and Jesus says it is finished. See, this is where we need to go as the church because confession reminds us that perversion doesn't mark us and stealing doesn't mark us and lying doesn't mark us. No, we're marked as children of God who has forgiven us and he continually reminds us all sin can be confessed and all sin is covered. There is not a movement on earth that gives a guarantee like this. And so he says, listen, Confession, what's the old phrase, is is good for your soul, but it's more. Confession is good for our church's unity. Confession is good for your relationship with your kids. Confession is good with your relationship with your spouse and others in community. Let me read it again. Confession 
is sharing the deepest weaknesses and failures with God and trusted others so we may enter into God's grace and mercy and experience his ready forgiveness, his ready forgiveness and his healing. I love that Richard Foster says the discipline of confession brings to an end all pretense in the church. God is calling into being a church that openly confesses its frail humanity, knowing the forgiving and empowering graces of Jesus. So let me just say this this morning. Because lots of us are saying, well, how do I do this? Well, here's the first thing I want to declare to all of you. No one in this church, no one who's a Christian needs to live a hidden life any longer. We are called to live in a transparent way. Jesus has already bought our freedom and calls us now to walk into that freedom. Jesus died to give us life and life in the full. And oh, by the way, let me just say this. None of you, me included, none of us can handle the weight of hiddenness and secrets and unrepented sin. None of us. Psychologists tell us today and doctors tell us today that the physiological and the mental stress many people carry is because they are carrying secrets they've never faced down. I love what David wrote in Psalm 32, 1, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 3, everyone ready? When I kept silent, when I hid, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as like in the heat of summer. But then, then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not, ready, cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. We declare like every church does on earth, freedom over hiddenness every day. Freedom over secrets every day. Grace over unforgiveness. And yes, Jesus will forgive. He has forgiven and nothing is too small or big. And oh, side note everyone, he's not going to be shocked by your confession. He was sitting there when you did it. How do we do this right? One wrote in the 16th century, for a good confession, there are three things necessary. You may want to write this down. You need to examine your conscience, you need sorrow, and you need a determination to avoid sin. The funny thing about examining our conscience is our conscience is tainted by sin, so we deceive ourselves. So the thing you need to start with is this, you need to pray a very bold prayer, and here it is simply, oh God, since I am your child already and I don't need to hide from you, what am I doing that actually is displeasing to you? And sit quietly and see if the Lord brings you to something. And not only that, one of the best things to do is pull out the Ten Commandments and the fruit of the Spirit and just read them every day and say, Lord, where am I falling down? And when you, listen, see where you're falling down, don't be afraid, confess. Our author of our faith is perfect, not us. And so use the tools of Scripture. And here's the second thing that's going to freak a lot of you out. You need to be specific in your confessions. Far too long in the church, confession has been like this. I struggle with lust. Uh, Yeah, so do I. What do you mean by that? 
See, right when you start confessing specifically, all hiddenness is ripped away. When you actually start saying, well, actually, the truth is, I don't just struggle with lust, but I have actually been infatuating over an individual in our church. They don't know it, but this is, and I, I need, hiddenness is broken. Right when you say, actually, it's not just lust, it's a porn addiction, and actually, if I really want to be, I'm really embarrassed, it's this type of porn, not going to, but it's actually this type of porn, and honestly, I, I don't know how to get out. Hiddenness is broken. When you say, well, I have a stealing problem, well, what do you mean? Well, actually, I keep going to this one base store, and I'm stealing on two, hiddenness is broken. You see, one person wrote this so powerfully, generalized confession might save you from the feeling of humiliation or shame, but it will not ignite inner healing. God calls us into specific confession, not to hurt us, to burn us, to kick us. No, this is where grace is released, not where grace is withheld. Why? Because then all hiddenness is broken. Well, some of you are saying, well, John, here's my next question. I wonder if I just don't feel like doing it. That's why they're called spiritual disciplines. It's like, you know, I don't feel like going to the gym. We all go, mm, amen, right? Okay, like, yeah. You know, like, I, I really want to lose weight. Yes. I don't feel, you know, yeah. You're, like, this is about obedience. Some of you are saying, okay, well, John, I, I'm freaked out. I'm okay. I wasn't expecting this. I really just wanted a taco later. Um, um, okay. Who do I do this with? I mean, I got the God thing. Yes, he's good. But, but, and you just said all Christians can do this. But here's my response. Yes, all Christians can do this. Not all Christians are equipped. Three people that you don't want to confess your sins to. Okay? And, and, and I won't point them out in our church. I'm just saying three. They're not three people. Please stand. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. See, it's okay to laugh. Breathe. Everyone says, okay. Uh, uh, the, the first person you don't want to confess your sins to is someone who's going to do this. You did what? Oh my gosh. Okay, no. Not helpful. Not helpful. You need to, you need to confess your sins to someone who actually knows they've been forgiven. Oh, stop. Let me say it again. You need to confess your sins to someone who knows how messed up they were and they've been forgiven so they're good with grace. There's no, I can't believe you did that. They're like, man, me too. praise God. Second person you don't want to do, uh, confess your sins to is someone who's not safe. Oh, they're like, oh yeah, I hear that. Then they're at the prayer meeting. Oh Lord, just praying for John, you know, as he admitted he stole this week. Okay, not safe, danger. If the person can't close their mouth, run away. They have a confession to make themselves. Different conversation. Uh, and the third person you don't want to confess your sin to is someone who says it's not that bad. That's the danger in this church, by the way. No, it's okay. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I know the Bible says about that, but, you know, our culture says it's okay, so I'm okay with it. It's not, it's not as bad as, no, no. You want someone who's going to look and say, yes, Jesus says it's wrong. The scriptures say it's wrong. I hear your confession. Let's move on. Be very careful who you confess with. But it's very clear in Scripture. We need to do it with God and each other. And oh, by the way, do you know why we need to do it with each other? Because so many of us, if we're honest, wonder if God's work actually happened in us. When we sit down and we're doing our devotions, right? You're reading your Beth Moore study, ladies, right? Ladies, do you hear me? Yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, and, and, you know, or, or, or guys, you're in a connect group, or, or, or you're listening to this sermon, you're sitting and you're in by yourself, and you say, God, you know, you know I did this thing. Like, I'll, I'll use an example. Like, man, I just, I really mistreated my wife. I just got really angry. And then 10 minutes later, this is what happens to me. I go, I wonder if Jesus really forgave me because I don't really feel any different. And, um, and then, of course, my heart accuses me and then the devil shows up and goes, oh, please. 
You're such a, a sucky dad. And you're a terrible husband. And oh, you think you're such an amazing, you, you suck as a pastor. Don't you know how bad you are? And I'm sitting alone. But when someone looks you in the eye and says to you, no, no. Not only does the scriptures declare, but because of the scriptures, I'm telling you face to face, you are forgiven. There is power in that because it breaks the spiral of being alone. So many of us aren't free in this church, even when we are confessing, because we only do it with God and not others. And when that happens, we don't have someone reassuring us. And the reason why we need each other is reassurance that what God has said is really happening. We're not using what God has given us. It helps us to avoid sin. But let me give one last thing. It comes out of uh, Galatians 6. Be very careful when you hear someone's confession. And let me tell you why. Galatians 6.1 reads like this. Everyone ready? Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Oh, key word, right? Gently. And then notice this. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. How many times have we as good godly Christians been trying to support someone, and as they have confessed to us, Their struggle is our struggle. And suddenly we get excited, turned on. We get moved towards darkness as they're confessing because we have not properly prepared ourselves. The scriptures are clear. And this is where I end today. When people come to me as a Christian and as a pastor, and I have the great privilege of hearing their confession, this is what I say to them. I have no authority in myself to, confess, you know, to, to give absolution. But I do declare, I love what the old prayer book in the Anglican church says. It says, I've heard your confession. And because I know the scriptures declare that when you confess all sin to Christ, you are forgiven. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel because of Jesus, it is done. And that's what all of us get to do in this church with each other. And what is the result of this? The result of this actually is what we've been praying about for three years. It's when revival takes even deeper roots because no hiddenness and no sin to block the work of the Spirit of Christ in our relationships. And freedom marks our church. Now we're going to end this sermon and this, this worship time together with a song called Freedom. And I'm saying this is an invitation, but it is not necessarily true unless you choose to do this. But I'm saying as one of Christ's ministers to you, God has come unexpectedly on the first Sunday in summer, and he's come very close to many of you, and he is saying to me, stop hiding, stop being afraid, stop pushing down. I have died and risen again so you can be free And as freedom grows in you and you learn this practice, as other people see your life change, they will say to you, truly, truly, what has happened to you? And you can say, I have found freedom that is found nowhere else on earth. His name is Jesus. And he's restored me back to God the Father. And the freedom I have, you can have too. What do you need to confess to our God. I I implore you, church, don't 
waste the freedom we already have. Don't waste the freedom that has already been given. Let's stand together and pray. Lord God of heaven and earth who sees all, knows all, and loves us. God of grace and mercy, whose love endures forever. To you I ask, Father and Son, that you would now send your Holy Spirit on this movement, at this moment, to everyone watching and listening online. And I ask that you would begin to show us the obvious and not so obvious sins we need to confess, the past issues we've avoided or forgotten, past pain that has never been resolved. And I pray supernaturally, Holy Spirit, you would superintend moments of confession between us and you. And then you'd begin to set up relationships across this church where confession can happen. I pray because I know it's God's will in the name of Jesus for freedom to mark this church. And I pray against all form of guilt, all form of fear, and all forms of hiding now in Jesus' name. Nothing less than the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God the Father on earth in C4 as it's been declared in heaven. Freedom, my friends, freedom. Let's thank God he started with that with us. Isn't he a good God? Grace, grace. Let's sing to him together.